today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. The new Ontario government has decided to shelve part of the anti-scalping law that would have capped the price that scalpers can charge. That is the craziest thing I've ever heard right at the outset. We, <laughs> we are going to legislate what scalpers can charge for tickets. As though that's even remotely enforceable. Any law that's not enforceable is a terrible law and has no place on the books. There was no way you would ever be able to do that. But what do I know? Dean Budnick is the co-author of Ticket Masters, The Rise of the Concert Industry and How the Public Got Scalped. He's also the uh, editor-in-chief of Relix Magazine. Hey, Dean, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jeremy. You're down in Rhode Island, correct? I am indeed. 93 degrees. There you go. Yeah, we're uh, we're baking at about uh, 80 if we go in Fahrenheit scale. Uh, you, yeah. you know, we're up we're in we're in Celsius up here. You're in Fahrenheit down there. Doesn't matter. The concert. The, the bottom line here. Here's the segue that I do as a talk show host. The the concert market, ticket market, is hot. No matter what the temperature is where you are and where I am, it's a hot market. And it, it, lovely and it, work, sir. And it's been controversial forever and ever. I go back, you're a lot younger than me, Dean, I suspect. I'm 51. I, I go back to the days in Toronto when we lined up overnight for tickets um, outside what was then called the Bass Ticket Outlet places in, in Toronto. And you lined up and all night long and you held your place in line and maybe you were lucky to get your hands on three or four tickets. Um, but even then... Even then, there was there was an in. Um, the record industry had an in. I haven't read your book, by the way. I'm, I'm going to, but um, tell me your thoughts about trying to, you know, get around ticket scalping. You can't do it with legislation or laws, can you? Not of the sort that that currently is on the books that's being held back. Just like you say, it, it seems a little bit absurd to try to enforce in this particular instance. And by the way, I'm basically just as old as you are. And uh, it's interesting. I went to see you too last night. They finished their, uh, their North American tour out in Connecticut. And I can recall seeing them in Worcester in the early 80s. Same thing as you, standing in line, camping overnight. You knew you were guaranteed seats if you made that physical commitment to a show. And the internet has just changed everything, which becomes a big issue relative to secondary sales scalpers and that really that's really what's what's complicated the whole situation here dean isn't the the real issue uh with tickets and 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 pricing uh a question of inventory there there are you know usually you know we'll just say for the sake of an argument 10 times more people than there are seats available for a show and you know it's a simple economic uh, principle of supply and demand isn't that really what drives all of this and how will that ever change sure. well n- not only that but it's again it's, it's compounded by the internet if someone right. wanted to the buy yeah well not even that just think about this Let, let's say somebody you know foo fighters right coming to roger center next uh in a few days right next week i think yeah and if you were savvy about it and you knew those tickets were going on sale and understood that if you could get great seats, you could turn around and sell them online. You could buy those tickets 
not if you're even in, forget about the province, if you're even in Canada, someone down in the, in the tip uh, of Florida or yeah. somewhere else in the world could buy tickets. Because we have these online platforms like Ticketmaster's official platform or StubHub or lots of other places, people know they can make a quick uh, dollar by simply buying these tickets, turning around, and flipping them online. And that really has compounded whatever initial issues were there, because let's just like you said, they're, they're in, in many cases, when you get to the popular shows, supply and demand uh, are, are going to dictate frustration. But I really do think because anybody can buy these tickets and then, and then resell them, that it's made it all the more challenging just for fans of bands to go out and, and try to support their favorite artists. But is that a real... Is that a real problem? I mean, we live in a free market society. You guys, south of the 49th parallel, invented free market <laughs> trade. I mean, you guys are the, never mind the trade war that's going on between our two countries, but, <laughs> you, right. you know, you Americans are the ultimate capitalists, historically speaking. Um, you know, we we love you guys for that. And, and so we're talking about the ultimate capitalist endeavor which is you know uh, selling something uh, that people value for a premium we buy stocks and bonds all day long and, and, and we buy low and sell high that's the nature of our economies that's how democracies work i don't know i, don't, I just don't have a problem with this why is this such a big deal for concerts honestly i mean it's not bread i just think right I, listen i think it's a sexy issue for for legislators to get involved with. They feel like they're doing something. In this particular case, There's I the think point. they were well-intentioned, arguably, but a little bit mis misguided about what they're doing. Ultimately, it comes to, do we want to spend the resources to try to police this? And I think that's why Doug Ford has decided, well, no, we, we don't necessarily want to use these resources. I mean, I, I think a lot of this, a lot of the hullabaloo the, the, the is really um, dictated by a few individuals in part by the ticket sellers, right? Ticketmaster then wants you to be able to resell these tickets on their, on their platform. So they're arguing about it in one particular way, as is StubHub. On the other side of it, I think artists have become increasingly frustrated by the fact that so many people are reselling their tickets and arguably making a lot of money for not doing much just by sitting around in front of their computers while they're the ones out on stage doing what they do. But ultimately, I do understand the free market system. I do think it turns, it turns on, does a particular society, province, state, nation want to make this policy decision and suggest that it's in our interest to regulate the pricing of concert tickets when it doesn't seem like they're regulating the pricing of, of a lot of other things. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's what it comes down to, and I think a lot of people uh, agree with you Our, on this. Well, that, that would be a first. Um, uh, <laughs> Dean Budnick, co-author of Ticket Masters, the, the Rise of the Concert Industry and How the Public Got Scalped. Uh, you're the editor-in-chief of Relix Magazine. Uh, Dean, uh, pleasure to spend a few minutes with you today. Thanks for the time. Thanks, Jimmy. Take care. 905-645-3221, star 9900. I want to bring Catherine Moore into the conversation. She's an adjunct professor uh, in the Music Technology and Digital Media Program at the University of Toronto Faculty of Music. Hi, Catherine. Welcome to the program today. Hi, Jamie. How are you? I'm, I'm good. Uh, so right off the top, 
Uh, you heard what Dean said. Uh, I, I say that any legislation that's not enforceable is lousy legislation. Uh, what are your thoughts on, on Doug Ford's move to, uh, to say, nah, we're not going to, we can't have a, a law that puts a cap on what scalpers can charge? I think it's a good thing to step back and look at how enforceable this is. So from that point of view, I think it's a, I think it's a good decision. I think that also the public are kind of possibly less anxious about this. We're coming up to two years since the Tragically Hip Tour, which really was a catalyst for a lot of huge frustration on the part of, of fans at not being able to get tickets. Yeah, I heard um, I heard uh, musicologist uh, broadcaster Alan Cross on with our Bill Kelly this morning, and, and he made a good point. He said, you know, there were there were two million people wanting to have their hands on two hundred thousand seats for that entire concert tour. Like it's just supply and demand. What are you going to do? Well, exactly, and I think that what will happen in the industry in the future is that the future will have flexible pricing. That there won't be a fixed face value. Right. And that what will happen is, and Taylor Swift has been a leader in this with the so-called slow ticketing model, that the goal isn't to sell out in 10 minutes. So explain that model for those listening who aren't familiar with it. Sure. So the, the model is to really slow down the process of ticket buying so that it's less automated, that more can go to so-called verified fans, that there's a way in which you can tell that the person buying the ticket is actually intending to sit in the seat or intending it to give it to a friend or family member to sit in the seat. So it means that, and the other thing, of course, that Taylor Swift has done is to raise some ticket prices, which has caused a different kind of criticism but I, as you say, it's supply and demand. If there's people willing to pay a higher ticket price, and that's the price that the industry as a whole is trying to get to, what's the right price? Yeah, and the market, the free market determines that. The, the people that want to attend the shows determine what the right price is. And the price, Never been any different. And the price can be below face value. Right, exactly. So, yeah, if you're an act out on the road, and, and musicians, that's the only way they can really make money anymore. They, they're not making it from selling records. They're, they're making it from touring and performing live. That's why you're seeing so many acts, even older acts, out there all the time now a touring, right? That's right, and they're frustrated that the resale, and you mentioned this, Dean, Dean was talking about this just before I came on, is that... The industry's frustrated that they don't get the money. If I buy a ticket for $50, you buy it from me for $2,000, they don't get any of that money. I get that money. Mm -hmm. They got the $50 to divvy up. Well, I don't know what you do. Uh, I don't know what you can possibly do about that. It, 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 what? There's no way that anybody can create a law that's going to change anything. It's simple economics, isn't it? It is simple economics. I think that what customers, what consumers really want is transparency about things like fees. Right, right. Transparency about what's the source of this ticket and what's the actual seat that I'm, that I'm going to be sitting in because some of the sites still can list a vague, you know, this is up on the 200 level of mm of the Rogers Center and you don't really know where you are, which means that any kind of enforcement can't actually track that seat and pluck that seat if you if 
it's found to be being sold in some kind of fraudulent way, because counterfeiting is also part of this. And that is easier to enforce through technology than pricing is. It's um, it's it's a bit of a wild west out there uh, because of uh, you know the the technology that that exists. I'm sure that you discuss it uh, all of this frequently in your in your program at the U of T. Catherine Moore, uh, thanks for uh, being with us here today. I appreciate your uh, two cents on the matter. Right, you're welcome. Take Glad care. To be here. Bye bye. Bye. There's uh, Catherine Moore. She's an adjunct professor, uh, music technology and digital media program, in the Faculty of Music at the University of uh, Toronto. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. An op-ed piece appeared in the Toronto Star calling for speed limits to be lowered to save lives. Is is our lower speeds actually uh, going to save lives? Is that a, a, a possibility? I don't know. Scott Marshall is with us, a safe driving expert, former judge on Canada's Worst Driver, and he hosted the National Driving Test. Scott, good to have you on the show today. Thank you. Uh, so, okay, the debate goes on. Uh, lower the speed limits or increase them? Depends on where you are. Okay. Uh, school zones. On, Ontario is um, the only province that is at 40 when just what everybody else is at 30. Hmm. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, Ontario is such a busy province to begin with, you know, especially where we live in the Hamilton area. And it's not just in, in school. I mean, we're now summer. Kids are out all day long, not just, you know, before school and after school. So the Ontario government said school zones should be at 40. But even, like, the difference from 40 to 50 can make a difference between uh, injuring someone or someone dying being struck by a car. So dropping it in residentials is, is a good idea. Okay, and that's and the idea there. I'm I'm assuming I'm not a scientist, but you know it's car versus pedestrian, and you don't have to stretch your mind much to understand that uh, the car is going to win that one almost every time. That's right, and, and it's it's also cyclists, right? Um, you know, it's it's we have more um, bicycle lanes in, in Hamilton now. We 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 have more people using the roads other than in a vehicle right. of a car. Okay, so lower in residential areas. What about on what about on main roads and highways? On 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 main roads, you know, there's always going to be people who who want to push the envelope. They, they, if it says 50, they'll do 60. If it says 60, they'll do 70 and, and so forth. We have to allow uh, drivers to reach their destinations. There's there's no question about that. But we also have to allow those who are not in vehicles to reach their destination. If it's 50 or 60, I mean, in, in built-up areas, it's 50 unless otherwise posted. And generally speaking, the further the sidewalk is away from the road surface, the speed limit can go up, you know. And, mm-hmm. and we, we see those areas. We can all probably picture those areas around our, our community where there's a sidewalk and then there's a like a grass boulevard before you reach the pavement. So right. if someone steps off the sidewalk, they're on grass. They're not on, on the asphalt. In a lot of those cases, it's a 60. There's still some with 50, but uh, I think 50 is still still adequate for the main road. Um, it's it's where you have the risk of pedestrians and cyclists that the speed has to has to drop. And is that is that standard in other jurisdictions across the country? It, it generally is. When you when you hit rural areas, the speed limits go up because there's less chance of pedestrians out there. Okay. Right. Um, when you get a built-up area, it, it drops. Um, it drops near schools. It drops near playgrounds, things like that. 
Um, I've traveled throughout different parts of Canada, and it's it's great to see 30. And, and, and when people talk about dropping the speed limit by 10K, they talk about how late they're going to be for their for work or whatever. The reality is... That's nonsense. It, it is. You're going to reach a red light. In yeah. a lot of cases, red lights are red for 45 seconds to a minute. Yeah. So those those extra, you know, three, four seconds that it now took you to re- to drive that road, you're going to make up sitting at that red light anyway. Well, and if you account for human behavior, and you said it earlier, if, if, the, if it's posted at 40 and people are uh, always doing 10 over, they, they feel that there's safety to 10 over. What guides them is getting caught by... Uh, police ride uh, radar program. That's what they're concerned about. And they figure if they're 10 over, they're safe. If they're 15 over, they're not safe. So they, they, they consider that 10 over. So if you drop the school zone to 30, now they're doing 40, which is, yeah. which is um, as you pointed out, uh, 10 less than 50, which could make the difference between a child living and a child dying. You know, if you drop the speed limit just from 50 or 40, just, just to start with that one, um, and you, the moment you see a, a, someone step on the curb, it takes you nine less meters to stop doing 40 than it does at 50 on a dry road with, with properly inflated tires. Yeah. yeah. Nine meters. That, that's a big difference between um, having a, a pedestrian or cyclist slightly injured or severely injured. Right. Now, does this philosophy uh, change when we get on, on the 400 series highways? It, it, it does change a little bit, and I think a lot of us who, who've been on these, these roadways uh, regularly, we do come across those who are, are driving 90 in a 100 zone or 80 in a 90 zone, and, and they're a little tentative about going fast. One of the, the, the talks around the, the shop, uh, shall we say, is if you increase the speed limit to 110, those who do 90 in the 100 zone don't want to do 90 in the 110. So they'll more likely take the secondary highway. Okay. The ADK roads. So it gets them off those roads. It gets the ones who are who are more danger to themselves and others around them to use a different uh, path of travel. Yeah, I don't think there's in my driving experience. There's nothing scarier than a than a, a driver that's not confident driving. That's right. That's right. And I, I've done this for thirty years, and 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 I'm on the expressways all the time, um, making my daily commute. And, and almost every day, there is someone who they have the appearance, based on what they're doing with their vehicle, of, of tentative, either a last-minute exit, uh, merging on very slowly, uh, or just driving slowly, and, and, or the left-lane bandit being in the left lane going slowly. Right. Um, it's, it's, if we can either train them, reteach them, or have them choose a different way, can be safer for a lot of people. Okay, what about the people that argue that speed limits on on 400 series highways, for example, they're posted at 100, but they should be at 120 or 130. And the, the argument is um, that those speed limits are, are grossly under-posted. Um, Chris, with, um, who's with uh, Stop 100, you've probably heard mm-hmm. of this, this group, yeah. um, their, their position is that uh, speed limits in the towns are grossly underposted and uh, they intend to keep fighting vigorously to repeal or drastically modify um, those speed limits. Low speed limits, they argue, do not save lives, but instead rob good people of their hard-earned money. Yeah, I'm not sure about about some of those things. I mean, a lot of the freeways, they're they're built to be able to accept a higher speed uh, the way that they've been engineered. Um, there's, there's posted signs that say that, you know, you, you need to drop your speed to 90 from a hundred different things like that. 
But going to 130, and I, I travel on the freeways every day, or just about every day, and there's not a lot that, that you can do because we're in such a, a heavily populated area. To get your speed up to 130, there's a lot of volume. I mean, I leave at 6 a.m. and head into the GTA, and there's not a lot of times I can get my speed up uh, more than, like, 110. So uh, I want to know where they're able to get up to 130. Well, and, you know, I can't... Sorry, but in 2018, we're still talking about speed, and that's that's fine. But it seems to me that we should be talking more about distracted driving. Isn't distraction the issue? Isn't texting and driving and being distracted by screens and interfaces in our cars? Isn't that more of an issue? Well, it, it is, and let's let's put those two together. Let's say that you now have a license to go 120, and then something comes up on your screen because our cars are are now rolling computers, there's a text message, and you glance down. Yeah. You have uh, your, your, your travel time, but the moment you, you recognize danger, get your foot from the gas to the brake pedal, and then apply your, your brake, is significantly greater by going 20K faster. And now you, you have something else that takes your mind away from driving. Do you really want to drive faster? I mean, we, we see commercials on television um, where the... Um, the, the child comes out in front, and the, the driver, I only, I only look down for a moment. Yeah, well, you want to look text. down for a moment at 120? Yeah, right, yeah. It's, I think it's frightening. I, I, I really do, how people get this sense of comfort. Uh, they think that they're in their living room when they're in their cars, and, and no wonder they think that, because they have all the comforts of home in there. Cars are very quiet uh, now. Yeah. You don't feel... When you're doing 120, the engine doesn't rev and it's not noisy and the wind's not blowing through all the cracks in the windows and so on and so forth like they, like it used to be. So, right. so you have no real sense of sometimes of the speed you're going and then you've got all this other stuff on your mind and you can't wait to check your likes. You can't wait till the car stops because you just got to know how many likes you got on Facebook to that well, posting. One, you know, there's a few years ago I, I read how the, the, uh, the experts say that we have more free time in, in our lives. But what we do in our free time is social media, take our kids to activities, and do all those things. So we're always on a go, go, go mentality. And if you drop your speed, like really like emphasize the, the fact that if you drop the, the speed by 10K, you have more response time the moment you see someone else make a mistake. And it's not about who's at fault. It's not about putting blame. It's about reducing injuries and fatalities. Yeah. And if it takes you an extra two minutes to get to work, it takes an extra two minutes, but everybody arrives safely. Less distractions, less speed. And my dad used to always say, everybody's in a hurry to go nowhere. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Everybody's dad said that, and everybody's dad was right. <laughs> yeah, they, they, they are. They are. And, and those of us who then become dads, we say the same thing to our kids. <laughs> yeah, or we should be saying it. Oh, exactly. Yeah. But, but the reality is, is at the time that you're, you're, you're saving, it's, it's, it's not worth speeding up to a red light and, and, and asking your listeners, how many times have you accelerated towards a red light? Ask yourself, why did you accelerate when you knew the light was red? Why didn't you ease off the gas? You can save fuel that way. Yeah, and that's right. The way right. the fuel prices are, why would you not want to save fuel? <laughs> There you go. Good, good note to end on. Scott Marshall, safe driving expert, uh, former judge on Canada's Worst Driver, and uh, you hosted the, uh, the National Driving Test. My goodness, I'm glad I wasn't part of that. Um, <laughs> I, that frightens me. Scott, thanks for the time and insight today. Appreciate it. 
Anytime, Jamie. Take care. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye. There you go. And uh, let's bring uh, Ian Tootle into this conversation. He's co-founder of Sense BC in Vancouver. His group's been actively involved in the uh, speed limit reviews on BC rural highways, where some limits uh, were increased to uh, 120K in 2014. Ian, uh, good to talk to you today. Thanks for the time. Oh, thanks for having us, uh, Jamie. Nice to talk to you. Yeah, so, uh, you know, Scott Marshall uh, pretty much says is not, you know, advocating for an increase in in speed limits, um, either on highways or uh, particularly in residential areas. Um, what What is your take on, on all of that? Well, you know, Jamie, I was scribbling like crazy while I, while I was listening to him. I, I agree with some of what uh, what Scott said, but some I, I take issue with. And uh, one of the things that he said was that concerned me is that dropping speed limits is a good idea, with the assumption being that when you slow everybody down, you're going to have less crashes. Um, but uh, the, the main one he said is that... Uh, you know, when you slow people down, you're going to have less damage and more possibility of survival. And um, there is quite a bit of conversation these days across the country in the urban areas uh, being promoted specifically by the cycling and pedestrian lobbies, suggesting that we should be using what's called a safe systems methodology, which is the the slowing of all vehicles down to uh, what they call survival speeds. And, you know, there may be some merit to that in some areas, but there's certainly not merit to it on the freeways. And uh, we, we did do uh, urban speed, or sorry, uh, rural speed limit reviews in B.C., uh, raised some of the highway limits to 120 with, with success. And, um, you know, I, I disagree with the idea that we should be slowing traffic down, sl- slowing traffic down in the lower mainland around Vancouver uh, because of increased congestion uh, as a result of increased population has actually um, increased our collisions quite dramatically over the last couple of years. So it's counterintuitive, I know, but when you start slowing people down, you actually frustrate them. So um, not the answer. I disagree with it. Right. What do we know about human behavior, uh, like scientific studies, if there are any, I don't want to put you too much on the spot, about human behavior and, and how we perceive speed and and how we have an in whether we have an internal sort of governance um to say you know with our senses hey i'm i'm going too fast here or i'm going too slow what what do we know about human behavior in in that regard when it comes to driving on on highways is there a is there a speed at which human beings start to typically say okay this is fast enough well of course i mean you have uh we have actually a live uh, live proof of this, uh, which takes place every day on some of the autobahns in Germany. You have unlimited speeds, uh, which are allowed on those roads legally. And, uh, you know, the average motorist is not doing uh, infinity on those roads. The average motorist is driving to the speed that he or she feels comfortable. And in on autobahns in Germany, that's, you know, somewhere between 140 and 160. Mm-hmm. There are the outliers that are going a lot faster than that because they feel they're capable of it. Now, just to bring things down to earth a little bit and talk about what's going on in North America, specifically Canada, um, we we are supposed to be using uh, the methodology which has been endorsed by the Institute of Transportation Engineers, which is called the 85th percentile, which is where you measure the free flow of traffic over a period of time at different times, and you choose the point to which up to 85% of the drivers travel or the speed to which they travel to. 
And that's how you choose, that's how you should choose a speed limit. And um, that's based on the, exactly what you just said, that there are different speeds that are chosen by different people based on a host of different uh, criteria. Speed of the surrounding traffic, uh, confidence in their driving ability, weather, congestion, uh, number of driveways uh, exiting onto a roadway, amount of, uh, you know, people uh, on the surrounding roadways. So drivers intuitively choose those speeds, and those speeds are measured on a bell curve, and then they choose the upper end of that speed, which is the 85th percentile, and then they're supposed to be enforcing at the 90th and beyond. Right. That's not generally what we do in Canada. We, we have all kinds of complicated ideas coming from uh, people like your last guest to have um, you know, who are making their minds up beforehand for these people and, and choosing what's in effect an arbitrary number in many cases. If you, if you sit in a room at a cocktail party and you ask people what a speed limit should be on a certain stretch of road, you're going to get all kinds of different answers. Right. And, you know, how best to figure it out is put the loop down on the side of the road for six months, monitor the traffic night and day, and then figure it out on a bell curve. That's the easiest and best way to do it. Science instead of uh, politics. Well, engineering instead of politics. Okay, fair enough, yeah. And so what it's turned into now across the country, in many cases, particularly in Toronto lately, because I am watching with interest what's going on there, is it's turned into politics. Photo radar in school zones is politics. It doesn't address a problem that even exists in the first place. It's a made-up problem and a solution to placate the people that are pushing to inconvenience and expense the motorists. Yeah. Ian, it's, uh, again, we're, we're out of time, unfortunately. Uh, you know, to me, with 15 seconds, distracted driving is, the, is, the, is, is, a, is as big an issue. Is it not? Would you not agree with that, that that's really well, the issue of our time? Well, I don't want to erode my credibility here in a very short time, but there's a bigger story behind that one as well. Distracted driving problems have fallen in the last few years, not gotten, uh, not gone up. Wow, we'll have to and, have you and, back. And by the way, the trend is is positive, and it's downward for collisions, uh, injuries, and deaths. By the way. Okay, I promise we'll get you back soon. Uh, Ian Tutil, uh, co-founder of Sense BC in Vancouver. Appreciate you spending some time with us here this afternoon. Thank you very much, Jamie. Nice to talk to you. Take care. Bye for now. Yeah, bye-bye. There you go. It's, uh, so that debate, I think, is going to go on for, for some time. I don't see that one ending anytime soon. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. For 2018, though, has the summer song been officially crowned? There's only one guy to turn to to ask that question, and it's Eric Alper, music publicist. Hey, Eric, welcome back. Welcome to the songs of the summer section of the show. That's great. Thank you very much for having me. It seems uh, like it was yesterday we were doing this a year ago um, <laughs> on on the station. And I'll tell you, I don't think things have gotten any better. <laughs> if, if I may well, say that's so. Just, that's just because you're getting one year older. Yeah, the older I get, the more cynical I become, the crustier and crabbier I get. Um, well, you know, there, there's some truth to that. You know, there was a study that came out um, not too long ago that actually kind of proves that when you reach the age of 33, on average, you stop listening to new music. And that's usually the age where people start to get married, they start to have kids, they have mortgages to pay, and they're not really relying on the radio for, 
you know, music-wise to kind of get them through life. They, they're chasing a paycheck. So when you take a look at, you know, what could be very much the song of the summer for this year, there might be a lot of people that says, well, I've heard of Drake, and I think I know who Ariana Grande is. But then you realize just how massive these songs now have to be because they're not just in competition with the top 40. They're now in competition with every single song possible out there on the music streaming services in order to become popular. All right, just for fun, um, let's let's play. You mentioned Ariana Grande, and and I guess she's a contestant for Song of the Summer. This is the track of a section of the track called "No Tears Left to Cry." Let's listen to a little bit of that. Right, uh, you know what? Uh, you know it's catchy. Um, yeah, and it's, it also, but it also has very much a different meaning than just your regular run-of-the-mill song, too. What, what's the meaning? I, I haven't studied it. Do you want? Oh, okay. Well, um, Ariana Grande was the artist that was on stage during the Manchester bombings last year. Well, yes, yeah. And th- this was the first song that's been released about since that. The bombings, yeah. So nobody could have blamed her if she came back with a heart-wrenching, gut-wrenching ballad. But instead, she came back with a pretty pop song called No Tears Left to Cry, which is her way of kind of going through what she went through as an artist that happened to be on stage during those bombings. So I think that it's not just about, for her and her fans, it's not just about that this could be the song of the summer, but it's also because of what everybody went through last summer, too. Yeah, okay, and that's uh, that's sort of traditional with, with music in general. You know, young artists have always uh, commented on the things that have affected our lives and their lives, and so yeah. that, that song's got a little bit of depth. It also happens to have a decent melody, a good hook. Um, yeah. You know, I can see that um, maybe turning out to be the song of summer. What about, though, the Carters? What about Jay-Z and, and Beyonce and, and their song... Uh, ape excrement uh, that which is not you know you got to replace excrement with another another word that I can't say on the air. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know what? When it comes to the Carters, you uh, you can't rule them out any at, at all. I mean, they did a surprise duet album that was only available on Title, which is the music streaming service that Jay Z happens to own. So if you look under Jay Z or Beyonce, you're not going to find the album. You're going to find it under the Carters, which is something completely different than Jimmy Carter's spoken word album. So don't be surprised if that comes up. But whenever two mega superstars like this happen to do a duet, think Dolly Parton or Kenny Rogers or Olivia Newton-John and John Travolta. But this goes one step further because they actually happen to be married to one another. Yeah, and and uh, I don't know. I'm... I- <laughs> I, I I just I watched Jay Z be interviewed by David Letterman on his Netflix series uh, recently, yeah. and I enjoyed the interview, and I learned a lot about hip hop that I didn't know, and I learned a lot about Jay Z that I didn't know, and I appreciate the guy's talent. Twenty one Grammys, over thirteen albums. You know, the guy knows what he's doing, and he's doing yeah. and he's doing some exceptionally good work with other human beings as well uh, on the planet, uh, but. Oh man, this song, and I can't play it. Uh, but it's terrible. It's terrible, Eric. You, you can you can just play eight seconds of a long beep. Yeah, it's 
it's a terrible song. Like even the, even if it didn't have an edgy title and all of that stuff. I mean, I'm used to, you know, swear words being in in rock songs. That's part of it yeah. makes them edgy. But this is it's just a. I just think it's a terrible song. I just. I, I think. I think part of it is that if you if you listen to to the radio and the hits and and you know well, well I'm sure that we're going to get into talking about Drake but you know if you're looking for hooks and melodies in songs you're not really looking for Drake although he's got them you know by the dozens in songs like Hotline Bling um, but they're really about the feeling the vibe the the sound of it because. Really, when you take a look at what was popular in the 60s and in the, and, and in the 70s, I mean, their verses were hooks. Their bridges were hooks. The choruses were double hooks. Now it just seems like there's really nothing to kind of hook the, 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 that moment or that melody on. But that's okay, though, because these people aren't really writing for you and I anymore. That is not okay. That They should be <laughs> writing for you and I. It's not acceptable. Um and it's not acceptable because what it's doing is it's corrupting the youth of in society by not um, by by allowing them to get away with not having music that has hooks, and they're going to regret my that parents, when they're my age. My parents said the exact same thing when I was a Duran Duran fan. <laughs> I know. And they said, this isn't music. They're wearing makeup. I know. Now look at them. You know, it goes in cycle. Look at the Beatles' long hair. They're garbage. They should be living <laughs> in the garbage dump. You know, same as it ever was. You know? Yeah. But I, but I'm okay with it though. I think you know when my daughter, you know, my daughter's 15, so we listen to pop music all the time. Yeah. And when we go see somebody like Shawn Mendes, I mean, he's. He's their version of Elton John in some aspects of it. Yep. He's their Paul Simon. Now, you know, in terms of the depth, you know, maybe not there just yet. But, you know, you go through some of these discographies of, of people like Drake that have had 123 singles and, you know, 107 top 40 Billboard hits. That's right up there. That's, that's blowing past Elvis and the Beatles. But, of course, I think it's only natural to say, well, are we going to be listening to these artists 20 or 30 years down the road? And I'm not sure that we will for all of them, but I think for this generation who are buying Drake and Ariana Grande and, uh, and, and Jay-Z and, 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 uh, um, you know, uh, these artists, uh, this is going to be what they're going to be listening to at their wedding. I think that uh, it's an interesting point you sort of touched on there. Will we be listening to these songs, you know, over in, in three or four decades from now? And one of the litmus tests, unscientific, I'll grant you, that I use is how fast a pop song finds its way into commercial use on television. And if it, and if it goes from being, you know, top of the hits list to selling burgers or ice cream or pop on tv i say to myself well that's somebody who knows a how to make a buck and make it fast because that song isn't is going to be forgotten pretty quickly if they don't maximize its you know commercial yeah. value uh do you yeah. agree with that absolutely you know when you take a look at some of the most popular songs that have been in commercials like taking care of business by bto um i mean randy bachman is is such a king at, at putting his songs in certain placements, or Andy Kim using Rock Me Gently for GM that was right after the, the, the Super Bowl, or Moby using all of his entire album of the album called Play. Every single song ended up being either in a commercial use or in a trailer for a movie. But all of those musics are designed 
for nostalgia purposes. They're all designed to bring you back into that moment of when things were simpler and sentimental. It's going to be years until somebody decides to use a Drake song or um, you're a Post Malone song or a Bieber song in a commercial. But rest assured, though, that, you know, when the 15-year-olds who loved Justin Bieber five years ago or 10 years ago, um, when they become 30, they may be using the song Story for toilet paper or cleanup <laughs> wipes or whatever. Baby wipes, because yeah. Or baby wipes, like, oops, sorry, you know, um, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, and you can send 10% of those earnings, Justin Bieber, for the commercial ad idea, too. Um, but, you know, uh, but it, it's, it's not designed, you know, to be in a new Marvel superhero movie because they've got songs for that. That's where Childish Gambino songs are. That's where Kendrick Lamar songs are. That's where the Weeknd songs are. They're just designed to attract attention to sell the movie. But when you get into the nostalgic period of what these teenagers and young adults are going to be, you can better believe that they're going to be using, you know, you know, songs from Nicki Minaj and Cardi B and Alicia Cara. Right. Okay, you mentioned Childish Gambino. We've got a, a clip of uh, a song called This Is America, which is also a contender for Summer Song of 2018. Let's listen to a little bit of that. This is America. Don't catch you slipping now. Don't catch you slipping now. Look what I'm whipping now. Look how I'm kicking now. I'm so pretty. I'm on Gucci. I'm so pretty. I'm on Gucci. Watch me move. This is selling. That's a tool. Yeah. <laughs> All right, a little different than what we grew up with, eh, Eric? Yeah, yeah, a little bit, but you know, childish Gambino. Yeah, and just and just also for those people who know, it, the the song of the summer isn't a symbolic um, award. Um, it, it is really specifically and meticulously, um, mathematically figured out where. If you hit number one on the Billboard Hot 100 for a week, you get 100 points. If you hit number 100, then you get one point. And so all of the math goes up and down based on where you are on the Hot 100. If they were going to do Record of the Year or Song of the Year, you can better believe that This Is America from Childish Gambino is going to be nominated as a sure bet for next year's Grammy Awards, simply because of the time that we're living yeah. in, in politics, in the movement of the moment. But... I don't think it's going to be even close to being in the song of the summer, even though it has to be a contender, simply because it rose really quickly to the top echelons of the chart when the video was released, because it was the, really the first major statement by an African-American artist that became popular based on him speaking out against Trump and the government. Right. There haven't been a lot of songs that have touched a nerve as much as This Is America from the title on down to the actual song have given. That's where you end up with really popular songs like Smooth, which you played in, in the beginning of the segment, or Everybody Wants to Rule the World by Tears for Fears. Right. Not a big statement, but just a really popular song for that summer. Yeah, or Hotel California, 1977. Yeah, there you go. You know, or Life in the Fast Lane. I mean, there were so many hit record, hit singles off that record. I, I'm going. I'm taking my 12-year-old daughter to see Panic at the Disco this, this summer. At whatever nice. you, whatever used to be rest, the ACC. Rest assured, rest assured. There's no panic. And there's <laughs> no disco. Don't look, don't look for any disco. I've heard the band. I know they've got a new album out that quote dropped a couple of weeks ago. 
the, see, I'm getting with the hipster talk here. You're, 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 you're getting there, yeah. Well, yeah. it was my daughter who kept saying, hey, Dad, like 13 more days till the new Panic of the Disco drops. And I'm like, all right, okay. Um, uh, they're, they're a pretty uh, strong uh, band. I think they're terrific. I think they're big on production. I've always kind of liked production, but big on musicianship and, and crafty lyrics. And they're a real uh, going concern. I think they could have a little bit of longevity in a world where artists don't have a lot these days. Yeah, you know, they're a band where you take a look at their Wikipedia page and you realize how many albums they have. And you think, wow, this is a band that they've made it. Like they're they're done. They have they have gone through the, the several changes of genres of music that have been popular. They've taken breaks. They've done everything correctly, and here they are, still touring in the summer of 2018 during one of the biggest arenas in in Toronto and in the area. Eric, before we go, we've only got a, a less than a minute here, but give me your favorite. I'm putting you right on the spot. Your favorite song of summer could be from any year. And it doesn't matter what it is, guilty pleasure or otherwise. It doesn't matter. What What is the song that stands out in your mind as the song of summer for your lifetime? Oh, oh wow. Um, I, I'm going to go back to a band that I just mentioned earlier. Um, in Back in 1985, Tears for Fears came out with their album Songs from the Big Chair. Yeah. And it was a, a time for me when not only Band-Aid came out the, the, the year before with Do They Know It's Christmas, yep. but as a 14-year-old, that's when I truly realized for the first time how much music can affect change in our world. And I, and I was very deep about it, and I still am very deep about it too. But that year when Shout came out by Tears for Fears, that was it. I loved that band for years before, and when they came out, they were just, I mean, gold records for that band was flying in like Frisbees. And uh, to this day, I still listen to that album, Songs for the Big Chair, and it brings me back into summer of 1985. There you go. It's an all-time, uh, it's an all-time classic for sure. Uh, Eric Alper, a music publicist, always great to have you on the show. Appreciate your energy and your insight as always. Uh, come back real soon, okay? Absolutely. Thanks, man. We'll, we'll uh, talk about the song of the winter. <laughs> we'll do that. Thanks, Eric. Take care. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.